Well, keep your spot in Psalm 73 because that's our text today that we're going to be working through. So again, if you don't have a Bible, there's some up the back. We're going to be walking through the text. But before we start, why don't I pray for us uh, just quickly so that uh, our minds are set on these things. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Uh, your spirit does this work. Please uh, open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, something every Christian knows by default is that God is good. I mean, ask any young child in any home who opens the scriptures and he'll tell you that God is good. But in Psalm 73, we have the story of a man's spiritual journey, which is going to teach us that, that there's a difference between knowing God is good and knowing God is good. Now, those phrases sound a bit the same, but they mean something very different. Now, don't worry if you're completely confused at this point because by the end of Psalm 73, I think you'll know what I mean. But notice with me the premise of this psalm. It's in verse 1. Can you see it? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So Psalm 73 begins with the premise that God is good. But did you see the qualifier? See, this God's goodness is mediated to a particular people. Or as the second line reinforces to a particular kind of people, the pure in heart, which is another way of saying God's people. Pure of heart in biblical language is a way of saying those who have kept their, um, sorry, those who have kept their heart for God. This is devotional language. It communicates these people's devotion to God. Now you might say, hang on a minute, isn't God good to everybody? And the answer is yes, the rain falls for everybody. The sun rises on everybody. However, there is an experience of God's goodness that is reserved for his special people. Because in this psalm, what we're going to see is that there's another kind of people, people whom God rejects. And so the teaching of Psalm 73 is that God is good to his people, but there's a problem. And the problem comes in verse 2. Because for a while at least, the author of this psalm, he's not convinced that he believes that fundamental truth. Now, he might have known it in his head, but what he was seeing with his eyes was telling him something else. Verse 2 says, But for as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So he speaks metaphorically here about falling away from this truth. And the cause of his uncertainty comes in verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, the psalmist has been watching the affairs, the state of affairs of all the people around him in the world. People with a propensity to go on amassing wealth, committing evil without any kind of restraint on their lives. And in the context of this psalm, it seems to me at least that these people are among the rich, the rulers, the heads of state, the powerful influences, the wealthy families, the well-to-do. But we have to be a little bit careful because the psalm is not necessarily equating with being wealthy with always being arrogant and wicked. After all, if this psalm is associated with Asaph, as the title suggests, whom we know that Asaph from other parts of scriptures was the king's uh, choir leader. And so Asaph had many wealthy associates, including the king himself who was a spiritual man. So being rich and arrogant are not necessarily the same thing. But you know what? So often it is the case. And that's why the rest of this psalm describes the welfare of so many of these types of people. Look at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death 
or in other words, they, they never seem to suffer. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which sounds like an oxymoron for a fat person working out at the gym, but what he really means is their bodies are strong and healthy. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. You see, the psalm leads us into this man's disillusionment with God's goodness, which seems to be rooted in this. Arrogant and wicked people are enjoying life. They appear to be blessed by God's goodness. And to add to this man's problem, he compares the experience or their experience with his own experience of life in verse 14. He says in verse 14, For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. What's with that, God? How come you're good to them but you're not good to me? My body's not always strong and healthy. I can't afford the Botox, the personal trainer. And I pray to you for health and healing. But I've discovered that as a Christian, I'm not exempt from hardships, from sickness. Not even when I pray and believe really, really hard. What's with that? But it sure seems to help to be rich. Can you see the envy? But he goes on because the results of their luxurious lifestyle, they're not quite pretty. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. I mean, this is graphic poetry. These wicked people, they know that they're somebody. They recognise that they're living their best life yesterday, today and tomorrow. And so they wear their pride where everyone can see it, around their neck. They dress themselves in it. And in their pride, they do whatever they want. Whatever they want, whenever they want, and to whoever whoever they want. Look at how they speak in verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? In other words, we can get away with it. So why shouldn't we? Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. These people are so greedy that whatever their eyes see, they, they take even if it means oppressing others, people who get in the way. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So you see, these people, they act like God himself. They act like God couldn't stand in their way. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. You know, this reminds me of King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you know the story. It's in the book of Daniel. He spoke like this. He said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty strength and for my majestic honour? Can you see how his tongue struts through the earth? And so the wicked, they have hearts so full of themselves, so full of their possessions, they have no room for God. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, the psalmist says. Now, as I read this psalm this week, it occurred to me that over the past few years, I've experienced this kind of bitterness toward this class of people. So let me do some of my own complaining. Did you know that this month the Guardian newspaper reported that the world's top 10 richest men have seen their global wealth double during the years of COVID restrictions? Double. My wealth hasn't doubled. I know people that have lost their businesses and their jobs and I worry about my own. And I've seen this video of Bill Gates in an interview on CNBC in which he boasts that his $10 billion investment in vaccination technology has paid off 
20 to 1. He's now worth over 200 billion. I mean, if you thought Bill got rich in computers during the technology boom, it's nothing compared to how he got rich during a time of crisis. It's no wonder that Bill keeps talking about the next pandemic. He's going to do really well. And he's no philanthropist either because he donates millions and millions to organisations like Planned Parenthood and they are bought babies and they wouldn't exist without the help of him. And then there's that crazy slogan that all the politicians kept using, we're all in this together. Well, not according to Psalm 73. We know that the people who make the rules don't always suffer through them like the rest of us. Like the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, recently caught partying while the rest of us, well, the rest of his country was under lockdown. These are the arrogant. And it seems like when God sends judgment and disruption upon our lives, these class of people, even then, they're untouched. Instead, they profit and they increase in power. Meanwhile, ordinary folks like us have to deal with ordinary folk problems. Now, that's my version of a Psalm 73 complaint. And maybe you have your own version going on. And it can make you sick. It can twist your guts inside trying to make sense of the world we live in. I mean, with people like that, they have no time for God and they're living it up. And you might be tempted to conclude, what is the point of being a Christian? And the psalmist says that. He says this in verse 13. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What is the use of godliness? What is the point of observing God's commands when at the end of the day the super rich and the super arrogant continue to prosper while I struggle? Can you see the spiritual hole that the psalmist has fallen into? Have you fallen into it? Now at this point on the spiritual journey, most people quit. After everything they see, they conclude that God is not good to his people and they remain bitter and disillusioned. But Psalm 73 tells us how to get out of that hole. There's a way out because there's a decisive turning point in this man's spiritual journey and you can see it in Psalm, sorry, in verse 17. It begins with that little word, until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, if the psalmist is speaking literally then he's describing the entrance to God's, uh, God's temple, the courts of God's temple probably, the place where God's presence was in the Old Testament, the place where his word was read, where it was sung, where the people of God prayed, where they made sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And it is there in the presence of God where things start to make sense to him. When I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And as we read these next verses, notice the change in disposition, starting from verse 18. Truly you put them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Do you see the change? Psalm has, this psalm has turned into a prayer. You put them in slippery places, O Lord, when you rouse. And so the psalmist is no longer complaining to himself or to others about the wicked. Rather, he's speaking to God, God's own truth about the wicked. You will know that something has changed in your heart towards God when truth, his truth, starts coming out of your mouth to him in prayer. 
But when his eyes were focused on the wicked, he was afar off from God, like so many others trying to make sense of the world. All he could see was their prosperity, all of the injustice, and he had no experience of God's truth from which to discern their future. And so he'd become bitter against God. And he confesses his sin. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You see, if we try and make sense of what's going on out there in the world among the wicked, and if we're trying to make sense of our own struggles without entering into a relationship with God, then it'll only ever seem like God is not good to you. The fortunes of others will be for your envy, envy and they'll anger you no end. And this today is why so many people are resentful toward God because they've never entered into his presence to allow themselves to hear his word and to interpret the things they are seeing and experiencing through the lens of scripture. What foundational truths does the psalmist discover in the presence of God that enable him to reconnect with God's goodness? I think there are two main ones and the first foundation is in the verses we've just read. And that's this, that God has an appointed a time of judgment. Every person that goes on living like God does not exist. Every person that acts like God can't see what they do. It doesn't matter if these people have spent a lifetime of amassing wealth and power because their destruction comes in a moment. And that moment is in God's time. He will cause them to fall, the text says. I wonder, actually, if the psalmist, as he stood in the temple and he heard this truth from the book of Moses as it was read, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near. Their doom is coming quickly. And so now in this psalm we have that same truth reworded and the people of God are now to sing and to celebrate God's day of judgment. Because the day of our vindication is already planned. And so this knowledge, it sets us free from envying those who seem to be getting away with it. Now, we may get to see their downfall, or we may not in this lifetime. But there's a certain time of judgment coming that the scriptures speak of, that even death itself will not let anyone escape. For example, the New Testament book of Revelation describes God's final judgment, and it uses words like these. And I saw the dead. Great and small, standing before the throne, the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Does that sound like anybody's going to escape? And so the first way the psalmist is reconnected with the goodness of God is he's comforted by God's judgment upon the wicked of whom he has been consumed. But here's the second foundation for his spiritual revival. Having entered into the presence of God, he discovers not only what God will do to the arrogant, but he discovers God's mercy to him. And this comes out in verse 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Do you remember in the beginning, verse 2, he said, I almost stumbled, I nearly slipped. Why didn't he completely fall away? Because God has been holding his hand. 
See, in Christian doctrine, we call this the perseverance of the saints. The thing is, it's actually God's perseverance with us. By his spirit, he brings us back when we begin to stumble. That's why the Christian life is not a life of ease. Because if the pleasures of this life led to ultimate joy and happiness, you would not seek out God's presence again. You wouldn't seek his understanding like the psalmist does. So the book of Proverbs talks about this. There's a proverb that says, Do not give me poverty or riches. Feed me with my allotted portion of bread, lest I become satisfied and act deceptively and say, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Just like the wicked people said. So Christian, do not be surprised when you receive just enough. Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Does that sound familiar? See, this is God's kindness so that we stay close to him, so that we do not love the bread more than him. Because when the psalmist looked at all the people loving their stuff, it didn't bring him any closer to God. It had the opposite effect. He began to be dissatisfied until until the realisation of verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Cement those words in your mind. Stamp them on your heart. Pray them over and over because this is the essence of Christianity. Everything fails. Everything perishes except this. God is my portion forever. He is all I want. He is all I need. You see, being in his presence is the greatest treasure. And so the psalmist learns the difference between knowing that God is good and knowing God is good. Or to put it another way for clarity, to be known by God is good. To be in relationship with God now and forever, that's the goodness of God to his people. That's what they enjoy. Well, as I thought about how to conclude a sermon on Psalm 73, I didn't want to add myself to, add myself to, to the message too much because I think Psalm 73 is one of those texts that seems to preach itself. I mean, the psalmist, he, he actually gives us a summary of these lessons that he learned in the last two verses. I mean, so read verse 27, read it in your mind, ponder it for a few moments. Verse 27, second last verse of the psalm. Is the message clear? The wicked will not enjoy God's presence. So do not envy the prosperity of the wicked or in any way emulate their well their ways, because if you live life far from God, you will perish in your unfaithfulness. Now read verse twenty eight and meditate on that. The final verse of the psalm, he sums up, I think, his entire lesson. Does that verse reconnect you with the goodness of God to you? See, in the beginning, the writer's faith was shaky. He wasn't sure if God was good to him, but he was awakened by the delight of God's presence. He entered in. So he no longer doubts, which is why the psalm ends. But for me, it is good to be near God. 
If you go home today with nothing else, go home saying that. But for me, it is good to be near God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, the goodness of your presence is the unfathomable gift that you grant to your people forever. We confess that in a world of distraction and evil people, we miss the obvious and we are prone to envy people with more stuff than us. Father, help us to say it's good. It's good to be near God. Amen.